welcome to Metamorphosis, the podcast of Trinity United Methodist Church in Piedmont, Missouri, where we're sharing the unchanging gospel with a changing culture. This interview features one of my favorite podcasters and writers in the Christian world, Jared Bias. Uh, Jared Bias is the co-host of the popular podcast, The Bible for Normal People, meaning the Bible for non-theologians, non-scholars. And so they interview a lot of theologians and scholars, and they try to um, share what they've been studying and learning about the Bible and interpreting the Bible with normal people, people who aren't necessarily experts in those topics or areas. Um, And he and Pete Enns just do a fantastic job with that podcast. It's been really life-giving for me. Um, And Jared Bias has such a great perspective that he shares. Um, He's a former teaching pastor and professor of philosophy and biblical studies, and he lives outside Philadelphia with his wife, Sarah, and their four children, Augustine, Tove, Alethea, and Exodus. Um, you can learn more about him or contact him at jaredbias.com, or you can find out about his book that I'm interviewing him about today uh, at lovemattersmorebook.com. I recently finished Love Matters More, and it is such a great book, especially for 2020. Um, 2020 has been a challenging year. The last few years have been really challenging, um, especially for people of faith. And this book, I think, offers some really great wisdom for how we can love more like Jesus. So I just want to read the back of the book. A new vision for the Christian life built not on being right, but on loving our neighbors. Christians have argued, debated, and fought one another for years while speaking the truth in love. Yet we are no closer to the grace-filled life Jesus modeled. Biblical scholar and popular podcast host of the Bible for Normal People, Jared Bias, builds a compelling case for how biblical Christian life is grounded not in collecting the right answers, but in authentic, living relationships with God and with others. Jared Bias calls us back to the heart of the Bible. Truth is only true when it's lived out in love. Delivering profound insight with his signature wit, Jared unpacks the concept of truth and why we so often fight over it. He offers compelling rationale for how what we believe matters less than how we believe it, and that ultimately speaking the truth in love is about following Jesus. For anyone who has felt forced to choose between truth and love, acceptance and rightness, this book offers a path beyond endless debates about who is right to a love that matters more. So let's get to our interview. All right, so I'm joined today by Jared Bias, uh, author of the book, Love Matters More, How Fighting to Be Right Keeps Us from Loving Like Jesus. And he is a co-host of the Bible for Normal People podcast with Pete Enns. Um, And so he has a lot of really great ideas and thoughts in this book, I think, as well as in the podcast. And I'm very very much looking forward to this conversation. Uh, So welcome, Jared. And could you tell our listeners a little bit about your faith background and upbringing? Yeah, sure. I would have grown up in Texas. I would have grown up uh, in a Southern Baptist context, and uh, my mother's actually my my mother's side's charismatic, so it would have been charismatic, uh, speaking in tongues, and a lot of um, that kind of expression of faith. And my my dad's side was very uh, born and bred Texan Southern Baptist, so that would have been my upbringing. Uh, but both within the context of of evangelicalism, which in this you know in in my tradition would have meant uh, inerrancy. Um, certain piety or moralism is what our faith is really about, sort of how we, how we behave and how we act and uh, following the rules. And there were some political and other uh, affiliations that, that went along with that. And then as I got older, I started to gravitate more toward it, more of an intellectual 
way of thinking about my faith. That's just kind of how I was built. And so I found myself in a Presbyterian church and eventually in a Presbyterian seminary. And uh, yeah, so that's my, my little bit of my faith background. Okay, great. So how would you summarize your book, Love Matters More? Well, it's, it, it is kind of part of my journey in that I started on this path of intellectualizing my faith, where what my faith became was about what I believed. And it was my job to police what everyone else believed. And if we checked off these five or six boxes of believing the right things, we would be good Christians. And it, that just started to not make a lot of sense, given the people in my life who uh, just were loving well and didn't have time for all the theological nuances. Because the further I got down that road, the more I thought these small things became really important. So at first it was, do you have Jesus as your savior? But then it became, do you believe in predestination? Are you a prelapsarian or a postlapsarian? And then you just keep going down this road where the, the mental checkboxes are so important. And then you find yourself kind of alone because the only people who are going to believe exactly the way you do are probably you and a handful of other people um, when you get down into the nitty gritty. And so I just started looking back through the Bible and asking the question, is that really what the Bible talks about when it talks about our faith and the content of our faith and what it is to be a Christian? And I came up with the answer that, no, it's, it's actually not about truth um, or guarding the truth or standing up for the truth. In fact, it's sometimes the opposite. We lay down our lives um, and not stand up for our opinions uh, for the sake of the other people. And as Paul says, you know, knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. And, and so just going on this exploration of how maybe we've gotten that a little backwards. So was there, were there any specific events or people or influences or scriptures, anything like that, that led you to write the book? Yeah, I mean, there were a few. You know, one was, it's, it's really a lot of my experiences in doing this poorly. So as a pastor, realizing that I was hurting people because I was so intent on getting them to agree with my beliefs. And there were people, not that they were against my beliefs. It's that they were built differently. They weren't there to check off, you know, these beliefs. They were there to love people well. And they didn't have, you know, I, I talk about the influence of these sweet 80-year-old women, sweet and also strong and fierce 80-year-old women at the back of the congregation who would sort of, I would go into these diatribes about how important it is to believe certain things. And they would just sort of wave their hand and say, well, that's all over my head. You know, that, that doesn't, mm -hmm. I don't understand all that. What I understand is, you know, love your neighbor as yourself. And at first I was frustrated by that. But then I think as I've gotten older, I started to see the wisdom in that approach um, that we major on the majors and we minor in the minors. And that actually can be more difficult. You know, I thought that was uh, the easy way out, but I've, I've learned that a life of love is actually the more difficult path. It's not just uh, this thing that we can check off um, and, and feel like we're in and feel like we have it done. The problem with love is that it's slippery and it's subjective and it depends a little bit on how, if you feel like you're being loved and if, if I feel like I am loving and what's the balance there and, and it just gets really, it gets messy. And I think that's where most of life is lived. So that's definitely one influence I would say for sure. Um, and the other is just in my studies on truth and trying to figure out what, what is truth. Um, where does it come from? You know, that was a big emphasis for me growing up was uh, truth was the most important thing. And we had it and it was our job to defend it and make sure that 
for future generations, we could be the light on the hill, which meant we weren't corrupted by the culture trying to take down truth. And so I just wanted to unearth that a little bit and come to find out the Bible doesn't have a lot to say in defense of that kind of position. Yeah. Yeah. Could you elaborate on that a little bit more? I mean, obviously you wrote a whole book uh, kind of elaborating on that, but Mm -hmm. uh, it's, I, I love that, you know, multiple times now so far you've brought it back to the Bible um, because mm-hmm. I, I think I agree that as I read the Bible, I don't see a lot of, you know, Jesus never says, you know, I'm the way, the, the truth and the life. No one comes to the father except by reciting the four spiritual laws, you know, right. Um, you know, I don't see a lot of evidence for you have to have the exact doctrine all figured out and worked out. I see a lot more of what you're describing about, um, you know, loving your neighbor and loving God. Um, and so maybe could you talk a little bit more or elaborate a little bit more on how you studied the Bible and what you saw or didn't see that kind of led you to where you are now? Yeah, well, I figured if I was going to write a book about truth, I should figure out what the Bible has to say about truth. So the first thing I did was I looked up you know, every instance in the Bible uh, that's translated truth. You know, I looked up the Hebrew and the Greek words behind that. And uh, it turns out it's often not even translated truth. The same word that is translated truth is often not actually translated truth, but trustworthy or something like that, mm-hmm. uh, not deceptive. So that was a first clue um, for sure as we, as we look at what the Bible says. And when we, when we do that digging, we recognize not only is it not translated that way, but the context almost never supports this idea of standing up for truth. And if you think about uh, even the, f- the verses uh, that we often go to, there's only a few, and it turns out that we have to only have a few because there's just not that many. Um, you know, I'm thinking of Peter um, being able to give a defense um, for the reason of the hope, right? Which is not a truth word at all. Um, and then, you know, Paul in Ephesians chapter four, um, speaking the truth in love, and I, so I do talk about that verse in particular because that's, again, in my tradition has often been maybe weaponized, I think, uh, where it's basically an excuse to just give you my opinion, tell you that God's on my side. So if you disagree with me, you're against God and how you need to repent and change. And I'm saying all this because I love you. Yeah. Um, but so, yeah, I think the Bible, I was actually surprised. I thought I was going to have to kind of make the case a little bit more, but it's pretty clear that the Bible almost never talks about truth in terms of abstract mental assent to doctrine and our need to defend that. It's almost always in this human relational way of talking about truth in, in almost, I'd say it adverbially, like it's an adverb. We do things truthfully. We walk in truth, as John says. Uh, we are trustworthy people. We're not deceitful. It's this relational thing where I'm not out to deceive you is how the Bible most often talks about truth. Yeah. You know, and it it occurs to me too that, you know, today we, honesty and integrity are such important parts of our culture and and probably in large part because of the legacy of Christianity. Mm -hmm. But, you know, if you're in the ancient world and you're in the lower rungs of the socioeconomic hierarchy, you probably, you know, you didn't have the legal recourses that you might have today. And you were probably very tempted to be very dishonest to try to just survive and and make it day to day. Um, And so it makes a lot of sense that in that context, you know, that's how they would talk about it, the biblical authors. 
Um, so in the book, you talk a little bit about the process of rethinking your views of truth and faith. And um, you've already talked a little bit about some of the things that sparked that. I don't know if there's anything else that you want to add about what led you to start that journey. But I'm also curious about what challenges or influences you experienced during that process. Yeah, I mean, I think this kind of gets at both of those. And it's how I start the book. And it's this idea of absolute truth. Because I think it's very difficult not to go around thinking that God's on our side if we think we do have access to absolute truth. God's given it to us and not to them in that us-them, inside-outside, inclusive-exclusive way of thinking about the world. Instead of saying, you know what, we're all, as Paul says, looking through the glass darkly. I mean, there's it's, it's not clear. It, you know, we're all in the living room together with the lights off and we know that there's furniture and we keep bumping up against it, but we can't see it really clearly. And I think there's a the proper humility to enter into this whole conversation about truth um, starts with the recognition that we're not God. And I think sometimes we've conflated that, that because we have the Bible, somehow we're God now. We won't say it that way, but that is practically kind of the outcome of our posture and our conversations with people is well, I couldn't possibly be wrong because I have the Bible. Well, the challenge with that, of course, is you may have the Bible, but uh, we all still have to interpret it. And we always and already are interpreting it through our lens. And I talk about this in the book as an, as an umwelt, kind of a parallel to the animal world where we all have our own unique experiences and our own senses and our own bodies and our own limitations. And that's what it means to be human. So that's not a problem really to overcome. For me, I feel like a lot of my upbringing, Christianity was trying so desperately to get rid of my humanity. It's sort of like your body is bad. Get rid of all that fleshly lust and all the bad stuff that comes with the body. Um, you know, we're true as humans. We're frail and we're, we're limited in our understanding. But if we have this, we can overcome all that. Instead of saying, no, the, the gospel is actually that Jesus reverses that and Jesus becomes like us. Not that we become God. We will always be limited in our understanding. It's just the nature of, it's the physics, it's the biology of, of what it means to be human. We can't know everything all at the same time. Our brains are too small. Um, and so I think this whole journey starts with this proper humility that says our faith then isn't in coming, it's not a journey to knowing more and more about how reality actually works. In fact, that's a way to get control which for me is the opposite of faith. It's actually a recognition that the world is big, that the world is gray. It's more ambiguous and diverse than we thought. And so now we have to trust in the one who knows us, not in the one who we think we know, as Paul eloquently uh, puts in, I think, Corinthians. Yeah, very, very well said. Um, yeah, I agree completely with what you were just saying and describing and what you also talk about in the book. Um, with how people are very attracted to certainty and guarantees of truth. Um, and so I wanted to ask, how does a desire for certainty and, tr and guarantees of truth sometimes lead people away from love? Well, a lot of times it's, again, I, I think I try, I try to make this clear in the book that it's usually not out of a malicious intent. I think we tend to paint, especially in today's age, we, especially with politicians, right? We paint them as sort of these malicious, power-hungry people. And I think that can be true, but I think sometimes our motivation for power is just because we're scared and we're insecure. 
and power helps us feel a little bit more in control in a world that can feel so out of control. And so it's, it's a good impulse, or maybe it's, I would say, a neutral impulse to want that control. But the problem with that is then we inevitably hurt others because we're trying to control them. And, and that's what we can do with the truth. We can use it to manipulate and control. And we don't have to. You know, I talk about uh, this in, in a few presentations I give. I talk about the truth as a scalpel. And I like that idea because a scalpel is sharp. And the only difference between a scalpel uh, used medically to heal and a scalpel used as a weapon to hurt is whose hands it's in. And I think that's a really important recognition that we have to be careful of the kinds of hands we have. Are we the kind of people who are going to use this truth to hurt or to heal? And that doesn't have anything to do with the Bible itself or truth. Um, it has to do with us. And so I think for a long time, we've put our focus too much on the text and not enough on understanding ourselves and, and how does the gospel transform us to be the kind of people who can handle rightly the word of truth, as the Bible says. Yeah, yeah, very well said. And as you were talking about that, I immediately thought of one of my favorite quotes from the book. Uh, this is on page five. Um, we need to create a new vision for the Christian life that is built not on the safety and certainty of our opinions, but on the risk and uncertainty of love. Um, and, I, and so I really appreciate your perspective uh, in this interview and in the book about how um, we maybe say we're speaking the truth in love, but that's often really more about exerting this sense of control, right? We, we want everyone to agree with us to kind of make us feel better about feeling confirmed that we're certain and we're, we're okay and, um, and that we're going to heaven when it's all said and done. And we want other people to go to heaven with us. And so we kind of want this control, but in reality, um, we probably, we need this vision where it's built on the uncertainty of love that, you know, we're more loving and accepting um, because as you point out, we often hurt people. I know I've hurt people um, trying to get them to agree with everything I agree with or trying to defend what I think versus what they think. And um, at the end of the day, you know, that's, I think Paul says this in um, Galatians that all that matters is faith expressed through love. Um, so you, uh, also in the book, and or you, maybe this is in the podcast or in both, um, but you've, I've heard you argue that each generation has to figure out how to apply the Bible's wisdom to its own context and situation. So what does that look like, and how do we navigate conflicts between different generations' interpretations? Yeah, there's conflict all around. It's not just intergenerationally, but it's also within generations. And, and so that's that risky part um, of if we like to break this down into an equation, A plus B equals C, then we get the control, but we, we lose out on, on so much. And love is inherently risky. So we have to navigate that. And, and so, it, it, you know, it really comes back to, though, why even do that? And I think that's important because some people say, well, we have the Bible. Why, why do we need to update anything? It's all right there. Um, but that's not true. First of all, we all know that's not true because we go to church every Sunday where the whole point of the, 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 the pastor slaves all week over this text and pours over it. And for what reason? It's to try to update and, and bring life, new life, and make it applicable and relevant. Um, so we already kind of already have this intuition that this is what we need to do. I just take it one step further and say that's not only something we 
you know, we have to do on this macro level of even the meaning of the Bible. I think that's what we try to, we try to get around as we say on Sunday, no, I'm just bringing out what was already there. Well, you know what? I don't think Paul has anything to say about social media and being connected to your iPhone too much, but that's what a pastor might preach. Why? Because we have to update the meaning of the text. We take these kernels and we try to make it mean something new in our current context. And when we do that, we're going to constantly bump up against, well, are you just, are you just putting yourself into that? Are you, are you just making it mean whatever you want it to mean? Is it just for your context? But that's the world of theology. That's, that's 2,000 years of us wrestling together as a community, trying to figure out what it means to love well now 2,000 years past when these texts were written. And, you know, ultimately what I trust in is not the neatness of it, but that the Spirit of God is present in the messiness of it. And I rest in, in what Jesus says in John, says, when I go away, this is a good thing. Not because I'm going to give you a book that you never have to translate or interpret. It's going to be perfect exactly. It because I'm going to give you the Spirit. And this spirit is going to guide you into all truth. So ultimately, you know, going back to my charismatic roots, I trust in the, in the spirit of God to guide us into all truth. Yeah. Yeah. That again, very well said. Um, and you touched on, um, you know, the concern that maybe we're making the Bible say what we want it to say or mean what we want it to mean. And I kind of want to circle back to that. Um, but first I want to ask, you know, in the book, you write that love changes the truth. Um, and so what do you mean by that? If we understand the truth, not as facts. So I'm not saying that love changes the facts, but love changes meaning. And meaning can be just as much a part of what it means to be true as facts. Mm -hmm. And that's really important. It goes back to saying that the truth when I say the truth is a scalpel, I mean the facts are a scalpel. Now, what's more important to me is whether we hurt or heal with the facts. And that's true. And that's where I mean love, right? If love is motivating us, then we're more likely to use that fact to heal rather than to hurt. And there's something bigger about truth than just getting the facts right. And so that's what I'm trying to undo is our obsession with only thinking of facts when we think of truth. Um, but there's something bigger to that. There's something more existential and embodied that I think Jesus is getting at when he says, I am the way, the truth. What does it mean for a person to be the truth? That's, that passage makes no sense if truth can only mean facts about a particular thing. Then what does it mean for Jesus to be facts? I don't know what that means. It, it becomes nonsense. So there's this, this underlying point I'm trying to make that if we can expand our understanding of truth, then love can change that meaning, right? We, we, there's a very simple example, but we have those people in our life who truly have given us hard opinions that maybe we didn't want to hear in the moment, but we knew it was coming from a place of love the truth of what they're saying was different. It was changed. It was transformed by love. And we've had those people who just tell us their opinion. I call it the drive-by vomit. I didn't ask for your opinion. I don't know you. You haven't invested in me. And somehow I'm supposed to just listen to you. And if I don't, I'm being mean to you. Like that, the truth of that interaction is changed by love. And as humans, we don't have the, we don't have the option to just focus on the facts. We're not robots. 
we're full of meaning-making capacities. And I think it's really important that we start to take account of our emotions and our feelings and the humanity when we're talking about truth. And in that sense, love can absolutely change the truth. Yeah, very well said. And I, you know, as you were talking, I was thinking of so many different examples from my life where <laughs> I've really focused on the, the idea of truth as fact and really gotten into some arguments and heated arguments with people. And, and then later, you know, reflected, you know, if I had been more loving, I probably wouldn't have gotten so hung up on the facts and really just addressed that in a completely different way. Um, so I think there's a lot of truth in that idea that love changes truth. Um, when, you know, and, and I, I think you're so right to distinguish between truth as facts and truth as meaning or truth as wisdom. Um, and that maybe is where a lot of people get anxious when they, we tend to associate truth as just factual statements. So you mentioned, you know, earlier, not making the Bible mean whatever we want it to mean. Um, and so I, I think you're right that a lot of people would, you know, listening to this or reading your book would have that concern and you anticipate this in the book and, and address it. Um, how do we avoid making the Bible mean whatever we want it to mean? Like, what are some guardrails that we can use to prevent that? Um, you know, how do we allow love to change the truth, but at the same time remain faithful or trustworthy with, with the word and with um, the Holy Spirit and, and God's teaching? Yeah, I think there's a few, I think there's a few things. I think we have to recognize that we're in a certain context that's informed and influenced by other factors. And those factors are really important. One is our community. So what keeps me from making the Bible mean whatever I want it to mean is that I submit to my community, my local church congregation, my family, my friends, the people around me, they're my accountability. And I trust that the spirit of God is guiding them as well. Um, now that we don't want to end up with just herd think where the majority rules. Um, so we can't just have the community, but we also have a tradition the Christian tradition is very robust, and there are all kinds of, of wise, um, you know, as the author of the Hebrews says, this great cloud of witnesses that can be there to inform and correct and instruct and, and rebuke and, and all of these things. We have to know it. Um, so there's this, this huge tradition. And then thirdly is our own experiences, too, um, and getting to know our own uh, awarenesses. Um, and so if I'm listening to the Spirit of God in me, I'm also less prone to make the Bible mean whatever I want it to mean. But I have to be self-aware. I have to realize when I'm trying to control people, when I'm trying to manipulate them, when, I'm, when I don't understand that I'm reading this from a very 21st century American white male heterosexual context. Like if I don't understand my own embeddedness, then I'm going to perhaps make the Bible mean what I want it to mean, but call it kind of the God-ordained interpretation um, when really it's just my opinion and interpretation. So, but I think what guides all of those, and I think this is important for every single one of those, is that we're guided by this hermeneutic of love. And I love how St. Augustine puts it that, you know, if you're worried about getting the wrong interpretation, um, the main thing to focus on is, does it build up this twofold love of God and neighbor? And if it doesn't, then you haven't yet understood the Bible as you ought. And I think that's just a, such a great summary Right, Augustine's not making this up. He's getting it from Jesus, who in Matthew 22, he's just repeating, by the way, when Jesus says uh, in response to what is the greatest commandment, love the Lord your God and love your neighbor as yourself. That's not new. He's just pulling that straight out of the Hebrew Bible. But what is new and what he adds is everything in the law and the prophets hang on these two commands. So he's, he's making the point that the whole law is summed up in these two things. And then we have, of course, James 
calling it the royal law of scripture, Paul in Romans 13 also saying, if you do this, love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. So there's this history and tradition that that St. Augustine is actually building off of in the scriptures that says it's all a hermeneutic of love, that this uh, getting the Bible right isn't the point of the Bible. Allowing it to fuel us and propel us into a life of love is the point. So how do we keep the Bible from meaning whatever we want it to mean? We ask the question, is this leading to an interpretation that is propelling me to love my neighbor as myself. Now, that punts the ball down a little bit to say, well, what does it mean to love our neighbor? That's the, that's the conversation I think we should be having more. I think that's a good conversation. Really interesting. I was actually you know, looking through the book uh, for that St. Augustine quote, um, and so I was glad you threw, brought that up. I wasn't able to, to locate it easily. But that, yeah, that, those two ideas that we have community, you know, people around us, you know, so if I have this interpretation that I think is pointing toward love or pointing or that I think is a more accurate understanding and then people in my community are like, whoa, that's crazy. <laughs> you know, that at the very least gives me something to think about, you know, and check myself. And then, um, and then the tradition as well, you know, looking at what church fathers and theologians throughout history have said about these things. Um, because as you said, there's so much diversity and so much richness in that tradition. Um, and, and of course, you know, I, the Holy Spirit as well. You know, you mentioned that earlier that, you know, instead of privileging the Bible so much that we almost turn it into an idol and forget about the, uh, the rest of the, the Trinity, you know, the, the Holy Spirit, we also can accept that as well. Uh, as a, a guardrail or an influence. Well, and if I can just address real quick, because I think as you're talking, it reminded me, I think the impetus for that is a lot of people want to know what are the rules? Mm-hmm. You know, you use the word guardrails. I like that a little better, but it's still, it's still as though there is a rule book. There, there isn't a rule book. And so that's what we have to, we have to wean ourselves off of the idea that there is a rule book. Well, if you just follow A plus B, you're going to get the right answer, which is C. The Bible doesn't work that way. The Spirit of God doesn't work that way. You know, in John chapter 3, I love it, says those who are led by the Spirit are going to be similar to the Spirit, which goes where it wants. It can't be tamed. It's like, oh, that's scary. That's risky. But that's humanity. That's relationship. That's love. Um, So I just want to address that because I think sometimes we're just looking for the Bible to do something it was never intended to do. It's not a rule book. But I grew up thinking it was a rule book, and I kept wanting it to be a rule book until I realized as I got older, it just, it makes a terrible rule book. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I, I really resonate with that. You know, a lot of people, I've heard a lot of people throughout my life also ex- describe the Bible as a rule book or an instruction manual. And, you know, like you pointed out, you know, it doesn't have a whole lot to say about how we conduct ourselves on social media, or, you know, what we do with, you know, our 30 year fixed rate mortgage, you know, it just doesn't give us all those answers and details. And it's not even trying to, it's not designed to or intended to. Um, but rather it's, you know, trying to point us toward wisdom and meaning and, and loving God and loving our neighbors. Um, and so I think that's probably a good segue into uh, another question. I wanted to give you a, an opportunity to explain uh, the, the platinum rule. <laughs> um, what is the platinum rule and why is it more loving than the golden rule? Yeah, it's funny how much pushback I got on this. We're like, who is he to say the golden rule is not, you know, again, it's a little tongue in cheek, but um so, yeah, I mean, it's just the recognition, again, it's just through my experiences that we practice the golden rule, which is treat others the way you would want to be treated. The problem with that is it assumes that we're all the same. And I think, again, relationship and love is about getting to know the person as they are, not as I want them to be. And unfortunately, our default is to have people want us to be like me. 
And so the golden rule gets a little bit in the way. I'm going to treat others the way I want to be treated. That's still centering me. What would it look like to center you and ask you how you want to be treated? So I think of the platinum rule as treat other people the way that they've told me they want to be treated um, and, and respect that autonomy. And so I think that's just a, a helpful way when we're talking about what love is, sometimes we can still center ourselves instead of centering the other person. And I think that's a good question to keep in mind is, have I asked what you want? Have I asked how you want to be treated? And that's how I ultimately, if, if we want to sandwich it, that is the golden rule because that's how I want to be treated. I want people to ask me how I want to be treated. So there, I should, I should remember that for my detractors. Well, it's just, it's kind of like the golden rule squared, you know? <laughs> yeah. No, that's interesting. You've gotten so much pushback on that because I, uh, I think that's fantastic. I mean, I, I read that and I thought that makes so much sense, you know, because if I'm treating people how I want to be treated, then I have to do a lot of mental gymnastics, you know, like, okay, would I really want deep down to have some tough love in this situation? Would I really want, you know, this or that, you know, what, what would I want? And, but if I'm instead doing what all the relationship experts and psychologists say to do, and I'm empathetic and I'm actively listening and um, trying to have emotional intelligence, I'm going to be doing the platinum rule, right? I'm going to be observing other people, hearing what they say and how they react and asking them straight out, you know, and then responding in that way. Um, so I actually think that makes a lot of sense. Um, so, I mean, I'm, I'm curious, you know, what, what is that pushback about, you know, like what are people uh, saying, you know, what are their issues or with that idea? And, well, it just, again, it comes back to this knee-jerk reaction that we can't say anything beyond the Bible. Like, Jesus has the final word on everything instead of saying, which is so ironic because Jesus himself says, hey, you're going to do greater things than even me. <laughs> I mean, that's, it's, it's, it's in the Bible itself. Um, and so there's this permission giving already in the text from Jesus himself that, hey, you're going to do other things. You're going you're gonna to do greater things. You're going to build on this. And we just have this idea that who are we to build on what Jesus had to say? It's like, well, that's the whole point is that we continue to grow and develop and figure out new ways to, to carry on this trajectory of what it means to love well. We didn't get it all figured out on how to love well 2,000 years ago. Jesus was human after all and, and limited in those same ways. He didn't have all the, all the psychology and all the studies and tests and everything else. And I think Jesus gives us that permission. So I think it's still rooted in that, well, how dare you go beyond love doesn't change the meaning of the Bible because we got it perfect. And I just, I just don't hold that view of the Bible or Jesus. Yeah. And I think a lot of people would hear that and think, um, oh no, that's not, that's not right. You know, because we really are drawn to that certainty and we want a guarantee of truth. I want to take a break from the interview to issue a subscriber challenge. Uh, please take a moment to subscribe to this podcast. And if you would even rate and review us, that'd be wonderful, but only five-star reviews, please. Um, those kinds of things go a long way toward helping other people to find the podcast. So there's a chance someone might be needing something in their spiritual life or in, just to encourage them or to support them or to make them think a little bit more and deepen their relationship with God. And maybe they find this, maybe they stumble across this because it comes up in their search rankings because you took a moment to subscribe and to tap five stars, five star reviews only, please. Um, and of course, you can share this on social media if you want to go even next level with helping people to find the podcast and to benefit from whatever we're doing here. 
here um, with our interviews and with our uh, sermon series and devotionals and the other things we're trying to do. Uh, So thank you very much for your help. You know, we exist for you. And with your help, we can spread as far as we can and benefit as many people as we can. Let's get back to the interview. To kind of circle back to something you said earlier, you know, we, you wish we had more of a conversation about how to love well. Um, and it strikes me that that is kind of the answer to those detractors and that knee-jerk reaction, you know. So, you know, how, who are we to go beyond the Bible? Well, we're going beyond it in order to live it out. You know, we're trying to figure out how to love well in 2020, um, which ironically is living out what Jesus says to do, you know. Um, So, yeah, so that's really interesting. Um, I know a lot of people, and you you anticipate this in the book and address it well, but I know a lot of people would also uh, be concerned, you know, as, as we've talked about a little bit, engaging in relativism or following culture. Um, and so I guess not to put too fine a point on it, but I just want to give you a chance to, to flesh this out for our listeners. Um, how do we balance loving well and also avoiding relativism or the appearance of kind of uh, being led by culture? You know, uh, for example, you know, do we, you know, how do we love the LGBTQ plus community well, but then at the same time, not engage in relativism or, you know, how do we love people that whose politics we disagree with, but not engage in relativism, you know, as individuals or even as communities? Um, and I could list a million other examples, but that's probably plenty. Yeah, well, there's two, there's two things in what you say. One is the relativism of it, but the two is how do we love well while standing up for our own convictions? And I think those are two different things. So on the one hand, you know, how do we, how do we avoid relativism? Um, I think it's pretty simple because relativism itself, the flip side of relativism is perfectionism. And I talk about this in the book. So usually relativism only means people who really want there to be an absolute truth. If we don't have that, they fall into despair. Most average people, like think about the whole enterprise of science. Science doesn't have the market cornered on truth that's still out there. Like they're still kind of out on that frontier trying to figure it out, but that doesn't mean them to be like, Oh, I guess none of what we do matters. It's just all relative. It's like, no, like it matters because there's really practical ways in which we see that it matters. And so we're, we're constantly building just because we can't see the end result doesn't mean we're not building toward it. And I think that's a really important point to make. The only people I've ever seen that actually have ever even used the term relativism are people who, are trying to get you to agree that there's this absolute truth and that they have it. In my years of philosophy, I I taught at a, I taught philosophy in the presence of a lot of really smart people. I know of no one that was a a relativist. Um, They would all say, well, that's untenable. It doesn't even make sense. Um, So that's, you know, once we get into it, it, that kind of doesn't hold water pretty quickly. But the question of how do we, you know, how do we love people well and hold to our convictions? Now, it's interesting to me that even in your question, and this is part of why I wrote the book, is we assume that there's a tension between those. Like, I don't understand why there has to be a tension between standing up for what I believe and loving well, right? So you mentioned LGBTQ. It's like, what does, what does loving people well have to do with whether or not I agree that this is, uh, uh, whether you're acting morally or immorally? And I go back to this point in Matthew chapter five, which is interesting. It's in the Sermon on the Mount. 
it's sort of a climactic moment actually in the in the Sermon on the Mount if you go back and read it, where Jesus says, "Listen, I want you to be perfect, like our my heavenly Father is perfect, and to do that, you need to love your enemies." Okay, that's great in theory, loving your enemies, wonderful. But we could mean we could take that to mean to love your enemies is to tell them the truth, right? That's how we we got around that. When I was a kid, the most loving thing I could do if you were my enemy is to tell you the truth and tell you why you were wrong. Because if you change your mind, then you're on my side and God loves you better. And how is that not like the ultimate goal? But I like that Jesus goes into more depth in this passage to say exactly what that means. And it is that God gives gifts indiscriminately. He sends the rain on the just and the unjust alike. He causes the sun to shine on the just and the unjust alike. Meaning, from God's point of view, we wouldn't know who the just and unjust is because God is indiscriminate in that gift giving. So my question for myself is, am I indiscriminate in my gift giving between those I love and those I hate, between my enemy and my neighbor? If I can tell the difference, then I'm not being perfect as my heavenly father is perfect. So when that, if I say I'm going to go to the wedding of my heterosexual friend, but I'm not going to go to the wedding of my gay friend, if I look at that from the outside, I'm discriminating in how I show that love and in the gift that I'm showering on them. I'm showing that discriminately, all because of this idea of love or standing up for truth or whatever that is. But with the picture I see painted by Jesus in chapter 5 of Matthew is that God gives gifts indiscriminately. And so we have to get to that place where our love is indiscriminate. Now, there's a different time and a different place where I can share my opinion about that matter and I don't agree with it and all of that, but that doesn't give me the right to withhold my love. I don't think there's anything that gives us that right to withhold our love. And I think that example in, in Matthew 5 is just so powerful to me as to how we do it. And if we can't do that, then usually the problem isn't this pure sense of me standing up for truth. It's usually me masking my discomfort or my anger or my disgust at the sin or the immorality and me trying to talk about that or mask it as telling the truth in love. I'm kind of a little bit passionate about that one because I think a lot of people have been hurt by that, even in that particular example of I can't support you in your decisions and therefore I withhold my love from you just, just doesn't feel like the kind of actions that the God I see in the Bible would take. I'm also very passionate about that, that topic as well. Um, you know, if we define love as wanting the best for someone, um, not an emotion, and I, and I like that definition because it helps me to love people even when I don't like them. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. <laughs> I don't feel good toward them. Um, and so if love is wanting the best for someone, well, gosh, that can morph so easily into being unloving because you think, oh, I want to speak the truth in love and change your mind, change your life so that you will uh, conform to what I think is the best for you. Um, and the key part of that is what I think, right? And, and it becomes kind of this control and this masking of my discomfort or disgust or anger. And um, I think that's it's a really interesting perspective to try to separate all of this out and, and uh, compartmentalize, you know, so I, I should be indiscriminate in my loving just as God, the father is indiscriminate in his love. And at the same time, I can disagree, you know, God really disagreed with the ancient Israelites often, or he, you know, he, he definitely does. Um, Jesus disagreed with the Pharisees. That doesn't mean he didn't also, you know, engage with them and love them. Um, mm -hmm. 
So yeah, and we see this even in in uh, I, I, there's a powerful a powerful picture of this in that Jesus uh, washes the feet of of Judas, right? Mm-hmm. He serves Judas even though this is the one who will betray him, um, and clearly he doesn't think that's a good thing. He's not endorsing it, and yet in that moment he doesn't stand up for truth. He sits down. He he sits down with a basin, and I think that's just a great picture. Yeah, that that really is. Um, I also agree with what you said about relativism, and I, I was just going to comment on that briefly, and then I just have a couple more questions. Mm-hmm. But, um, yeah, I, I that makes so much sense as well that there really aren't truly any relativists out there. <laughs> you know, it seems to be more like this boogeyman. Um, and I'm highly influenced by Alan Bloom and his book, The Closing of the American Mind, and and his that book that entire book is an argument against relativism. Um, but really what he's saying is, uh, to put it in simpler language, he's really just saying, I wish my college students and society in general would think more, um, you know, because his issue isn't that so much that people might situate truth uh, contextually or relative to culture or historical time. It's more that he observes his students and others uh, just not really caring at all to think through things. Um, right. And so to me, you know, I, for any of our listeners or you know, people hearing this and still kind of worried about that relativism, I would say, you know, I think the, the most important thing is to think through um, what we believe and why, but also how to love better. Um, I think that's a great point to make. And, um, and so relative, the danger of relativism isn't that people are going to actually not care about the truth, but it's that people just kind of shrug and stop asking themselves, how do I love better? How do I, you know, follow God? Uh, right. That's which is apathy. Yes. That's yeah. not relativism. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It, when I say that, because the interesting thing for me in this current political climate is the most relativism I've ever seen has been in the last few years, which has been, I make everyone's position relative to my own. Right. So I don't want to be seen as an extremist. So I mark myself as the center so everyone I know is a centrist, right? I'm not a radical. I mean, I know some self-proclaimed radical Christians, which I appreciate, but like, I'm not a radical. I'm a centrist. So therefore, I'm making everyone else relative to me. So if I'm a centrist, everyone to the right of me is too conservative and everyone to the left of me is too liberal. That's, that's relativism in practice is I'm making everyone, I'm making the world relative in its definitions of things and its labels to me, which is just self-centeredness. Wow. Um, and it's an inability to recognize we aren't that special and we, you know, objectively, if we could set ourselves up outside of ourselves and observe, you know, we, all, we probably are on this right side or on this left side or, you know, we can situate ourselves not in the center. So it's just interesting to me that I've seen that more in the last few years, which I'd call a true relativism, which is I make everything relative to me. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Or, you know, that principle that I really stood strongly by, uh, last time in this situation well now i'm that principle doesn't really matter in this other situation you know right yeah yeah which goes back to a little bit that dishonesty even with ourselves yeah 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 so this is really interesting because you know i've kind of you know having been influenced by bloom i've always been concerned about the possibility of relativism as well but as i've gotten older i've i've and had more experiences and, and things i've realized well 
the real issue isn't so much, you know, is truth relative or absolute because there are very few absolute truths. So many truths are relative mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Or context, but the real point is the philosophical pursuit of trying to figure out what is true in this right. situation or context. And, and then hopefully you maybe come across a handful of absolutes along the way, but the journey is really the point. Um, right. And, but now that he, those are, the way you put that makes so much sense, you know, that you can have relativism in the sense of making everything relative to me and using that to justify what suits me in the moment or the situation. (laughs) And, uh, and so that, you know, I think what you're saying about that journey uh, and that process of figuring out how to love better all the time, you know, that's really the point. And that's how we keep from descending into relativism. Yeah. That's the antidote. Yep. So I just have a, a three more questions, if that's all right. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm curious just about your thoughts on the state of Christianity in general right now. Yeah, I mean, again, it's important that we embed ourselves in a historical context. I think some people who lose sight of that, we think about we're in unprecedented times and we sort of make extreme statements about things. Um, I think Christianity ebbs and flows. Um and, and I think we're in a period in America of, of recognizing our own contextual situatedness, right? One of my favorite things to say is all theology has an adjective. And I think we've missed that in 20, 20th century America, that we have just centered ourselves, whether that's white, male, and we just call that theology. That's just the Bible. Oh, now you want to be a feminist. Oh, feminist theology. Oh, you know, ab- black or African-American theology. Well, we're just, all we're saying is, why did we, why did we normalize our experience? Why is it white American theology doesn't have an adjective? It's just theology. So I think we're just going through that, the, the growing pains of coming out of our own maybe narcissism and recognizing we're not the only Christians in the world who've ever lived. And, you know, growing up and he's an evangelical, I just assumed everyone was an evangelical. I didn't realize it's only been around for a hundred and, you know, 120, 130 years. Um, as kind of its own thing. Um, so that's been enlightening. And I think that's kind of what we're going through right now. So it's, it's painful and no one likes to go through that and there's ups and downs. And, um, and we're also seeing a big shift. You know, I don't want to also minimize this big uh, divide between Christians right now um, on, you know, politically, but also theologically. Um, there's a lot of divide, but again, go back to the third century, fourth century, people were, declaring each other heretics right and left so yeah not, not new nothing new under the sun <laughs> uh, that's a good it's a good encouraging reminder sometimes uh, mm-hmm. that in mind so what is something that you wish christians would stop doing right now yeah i mean i i this may again be a little provocative but i think i wish christians would stop trying to stand up for the truth because uh, I think we're making a mess of things. And I think it's a good impulse, but we're just not wise enough to distinguish our opinion from the truth. Um, and we, we just end up hurting ourselves and, and also not growing and learning. Because if I change my mind and I think that I'm right with God, then to change my mind is to go away from God. Um, and that just it seems dangerous to me. Yeah, I, I think that's well said. Um, what is... On the flip side, what is one thing that you wish Christians would continue doing or start doing? 
Yeah, I mean, I think it goes back to not to repeat myself, but I think having this conversation of what is loving and not assuming that the Bible answers it with any sense of finality. I think it guides us. It gives us these guardrails. It, it you know, I think of the Bible as um, this. I say in the book, a, a compost pile, right? This rich organic material out of which our lives have to grow. And then when we pass on, we become another layer of that organic material. And so the next generation can grow. And so I hope we keep the conversation of what is loving. I don't, I don't think we've had that conversation enough. I don't think we know what it is. I think it's way more nuanced than we've given an attention. I think we spend enough time talking about what truth is. We have beat that dead horse through the history of Western thought and philosophy. And um, I think it's time to maybe focus on, on love a little more. Yeah, absolutely. Um, have you listened to uh, the Evolving Faith podcast at all? A little bit. Yeah, some, just because they're friends of ours. Yeah. Yeah, I really like Jeff Chu's uh, sermon, The Theology of the Compost Pile. Uh, it was a really beautiful sermon. Excellent. Yeah, yeah. Um, I remember the, when he introduced it with Sarah Bessie, um, you know, Sarah said something to the effect of, you know, Jeff always makes everyone cry. And, uh, and she said, and that's not just because of me, you know, he makes everyone cry. And as I was listening to that sermon, sure enough, at one point I started tearing up. <laughs> Perfect. Oh, that's awesome. Jeff's great. Yeah. I really enjoyed that podcast as well. And, um, well, thank you so, so much for doing this. Like this is really a, a big deal for me and for the podcast. And, um, I want to encourage everyone to, Go Buy Love Matters More uh, by Jared Bias. And do you want to maybe talk a little bit about where they can find the book or learn more about you um, and connect with you? Sure. You can find the book anywhere online. Um, you could also go lovemattersmorebook.com. You can uh, get it there. And then, you know, we just do, uh, our community really is at the Bible for Normal People. Um, and that's what we do a lot of work with. So if you wanted to join that conversation, the best place is actually on Patreon, patreon.com front slash the Bible for Normal People. We have book studies where we go through different books and Pete and I, uh, Pete Enns and I lead that. Um, we have a Slack group with um, several hundred people who are just having these conversations every day about questions about the Bible, faith, doubt, certainty, all of that. So that's where I would point people probably. Okay, great. Well, thank you so much, Jared. I really appreciate this and uh, have a good rest of the day. Thank you. Appreciate it. Yeah. Take care. Bye. See ya. So there you have it. I really, really enjoyed that conversation with Jared. Um, as you can tell, he is a really authentic, genuine guy um, who really does put people first and really does prioritize and live out love and how he relates to people, how he thinks about issues, um, how he has a conversation with someone like me he's never met before. I mean, he just published this book, Love Matters More, How Fighting to Be Right Keeps Us from Loving Like Jesus, with Zondervan, a major Christian publisher. He co-hosts a very popular podcast. He's got a family with four kids. He's a busy guy. And yet, uh, when I asked for a podcast interview, he responded almost immediately um, and was more than happy and willing to do it. Um, he even worked with my schedule. So uh, just really appreciate Jared and everything he's offering in this book, Love Matters More, and the Bible for Normal People podcast. And just his uh, genuineness, and, and I think, you know, obviously he and I haven't hung out a lot, but based on my experience with this interviewing him, interviewing him with this podcast, you know, he really practices what he preaches. So I highly encourage you to, to pick up the book, Love Matters More, and uh, you can find it anywhere books are sold, um, including on uh, Amazon and at jaredbias.com or lovemattersmorebook.com. 
I also want to share a few quotes from just a couple of the reviews I've seen of the book. Um, obviously, I love it. I want you to buy it. Um, but I think it's also helpful to hear from a couple other people. Um, so, so Raymond Williams, a PhD and a pastor, he writes in his review, Love Matters More should wake a lot of Christians up. Bias's life experiences and wisdom that he chronicles in this book as a former pastor and now scholar should benefit those who have been victims of this toxic behavior of speaking truth and love, and especially those who have been the promoters of this ideology onto others. And then the Inglewood Review of Books writes, In an endearing, witty, relatable writing style, Bias's book is like a warm blanket for those of us trying to get back to the root of Christian love. And then it concludes, if you are a believer who is struggling to love and live the truth, this book is for you. If you are a believer who feels his or her faith has become empty, full of only rules without relationship, this book is for you. If you are a believer striving to love as Christ does in a society full of hard-drawn lines and unanswered questions, this book is for you. If you want to learn to live and love as Christ did, this book is for you. So I agree, this book is for you. Um, and uh, I just really encourage you to check it out uh, as well as to share this podcast episode with others. Um, so thank you very much for listening. I hope this was life-giving, I hope, and I hope this helps you to live out Christ's example of loving God and loving others. God bless.